0: Visit iConnections.io. I'm not a big Pink Floyd fan, as you know, Danny. I'm but a big in, Pink Floyd fan. You are? Yes. In 1974, I believe it was, Wish You Were Here was an album.
1: Can you tell a green field from a cold steel rail? There you go. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but one of the songs on that album that I actually heard earlier today is welcome to the machine. And I got to tell you something. Welcome to the machine in the form of this stock market, which is exactly that, a machine. And we're going to talk about it. But before we do, Danny, got to tease a few things. On this episode of the On The Tape podcast, by the way, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast, Danny Moses, Dan Nathan, myself, Guy Adami.
1: We are joined by Stuart Hold on a second. Dan Nathan is not here right now. Throw him under the bus. No, I'm just saying he, people are going to figure that out in three minutes when he doesn't talk about NVIDIA or his weight loss.
0: Or weight loss or, weight or, weight or loss. Tesla. So he's not
1: here. So he's here for the interview with Anastasia. Yes. yes. So let's correct. Go ahead. Which please. I'm going to tease right, in please. a second. But we're also going to be joined
0: by Stuart Sop, the CEO and founder of Current. Current. We are joined by Stuart Sopp. We are joined yes. by Stuart Sop. Yes. In a few minutes, yes. we're going to be joined by Anastasia Amoroso of iCapital. She's brilliant. By the way, if you listen to her back in January, she was the smart one. She was the bullish one, and here we are at forty-four.
1: I would call so. chief investment strategist, and probably wears many hats there. Many well. hats. Yes, do you
0: wear hats by
1: the way. I, I do wear hats. My head's very big, so yeah, it would be a thank you. Okay. stuart has got a great hat
0: as a head as well. He does. Amazing. he has got great yeah. hair. By but also we previewing on Monday? Yes, which is June nineteenth. Yes. We also did something called What Are We Doing Now? That would be, of course, Danny Moses, the aforementioned Dan Nathan,
1: along with Porter Collins, and Vincent Daniels. And I will note that on June 19th, I will not be able to lose money in the (laughs) stock market because it will not be open. Although it's possible, it might still happen. But as far as I know, the market's closed on Juneteenth. As far as I
0: know. Although at this point, it doesn't even matter. What else is
1: happening on Monday? We also are now doing a radio show
0: on Sirius XM. Market call-in on Sirius XM. Noon on Mondays, noon to one, channel 132, the business channel. You can call in and actually talk to us, and ask us questions. We did our first one this past Monday. They were thrilled with how it went. Excellent. So that's all the housekeeping
1: okay. stuff. Got that Wish out of the way. Wish you
0: were here. Welcome to the machine, Stuart Sop. Welcome to the On The Tape podcast. Again, now, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is your third appearance At on least. the On The Tape podcast.
2: Third time, Lucky. Thanks for having me here again. And if you want to know anything about weight loss, I can stand in for Dan Nathan. You look great
0: <laughs> all the time. But let's, before we even get into some of the granular stuff, obviously the market is top of mind. And I'm sure a lot of what's going on in the market has ramifications for what you're doing at current. But I know that I find myself extraordinarily perplexed. Maybe you do as well, or maybe you have more clarity than I do. But just 30,000 feet, what's going on? Yeah, from my point of view, if I have those two hats, the the
2: macro hat from the previous career and then this founder hat in fintech. So the macro hat is there's still liquidity happening, stealthy liquidity. Mm. And so they're drawing down on that reverse repo market, refilling the TGA. It's not really affecting liquidity conditions yet. And they've done that stealthy since basically the guilt crisis back in October then the SVB issue the Fed and other government agencies have been somewhat stealthy in providing liquidity whilst also having the narrative of QT. And of course, we're starting to see China and a few others come to the table with that liquidity. So it's pumping up the markets nicely, I think. So from a macro point of view, I think we're at this point of maximum confusion where there are some really bad fundamental things, but at the same time, liquidity rules in this world at this point. So the other hat, which is the sort of fintech real world consumer banking hat. I'm starting to see the VC market unlock a little bit. IPO markets, I'm hearing or rumoring to be coming back post July the 4th. Um, so there's some big deals. I'm not saying anything that. Within um, FinTech, you're saying? With, uh, or in general. Because the also- Mediterranean
1: restaurant went public today and it's doing very well. <laughs> there <you Cava>. go. <laughs> so anyway, it's keep an going. <laughs> yeah, it's a story now.
2: I'm giving anything away, but I, I, yeah. I think the I, IPO market's been locked up. And, mm-hmm. that, and also the late stage VC market was locked up. That was locked up because the public markets were out of balance with the private markets, valuations the LPs, which are pension funds, could not then disperse. They needed disbursements to then reinvest in subsequent funds from venture capitalists. And so it was all locked up with basically the public market versus private market valuation ratio. And so that's starting to come back. Now we're at 4,400 and whatever. Some of that machinery is coming back in and being oiled. So I'm seeing IPOs. I'm starting to hear that happening. At least the talks, M&As are starting to come to the table. I'm hearing and seeing some funding in late stage starting to happen. So I'm I don't know if this is the time to get really bullish at this point. I'm still a little cautious, honestly. But you're seeing some good green shoots through the market. So
1: you were here on March 24th in the aftermath or during the crisis of Silicon Valley Bank and the resolution of that and what the Fed and Treasury did. So let's make this simple, right? So since you were last here... The Fed is now retrenched on some of their portfolio, but it went from 8.5 trillion basically to nine. We're working our way back towards the 8.5 trillion. A lot of that came at the window, people being able to post this collateral. China today, literally People's Bank of China saying, here comes the stimulus, they're cutting rates, they're gonna put money in infrastructure, right? Because we're just money sloshing around the system. I think you'll agree with this, that the implied guarantee effectively of all depositors has occurred. Yep. So basically, we know that. We know the Fed's gonna be there at any point now. Treasury, the moral hazard is alive and well, and stuff is trying to find a home and the money's sloshing around. So, the one thing that I always don't respect enough is I do fundamentals mm-hmm. first and liquidity yeah. second. It's all about liquidity, to your point. We had Kava go public today at a two and a half billion valuation. I always love this because, and I'm not gonna value Kava, great, it's a, now it doubled, it's five billion. If I'm the CEO and founder of Kava, I'm like, hey, JP Morgan, why did you price me at 22 if we're going to trade it for it? Anyway, I love, but it is healthy to see that. Like there's been, there's the sixth largest IPO, right? you like their food, (laughs) sixth largest IPO of the year. We're about 50% behind where we were last year as far as IPOs, but that was as expected. We'll get into more, but there is a healthy aspect to, we see things like that as a one-off separate from any AI separate. That's what's supposed to happen. That's capitalism working here, but it is amazing. Stuart, that what we're seeing fundamentals be damned for the most yeah. part. And I hear, I don't think you're talking in your book. I don't think current's doing a raise necessary. Nope. I don't think there's M&A going on. So you're not willfully looking for these things to happen. You're, you've been in this industry. You see this yep. stuff go on. So I'm trying to basically realign myself and my brain. And we've been joking for the last few weeks oh, be bullish. That means the small caps will catch up. They're catching up yeah. to a degree. What is it now, in your opinion, from a macro perspective, that could go wrong here? And I'd argue if it does go wrong, I don't know where the bottom is in terms of, because there's no valuation metrics that really make sense here.
2: No, especially for some of those smaller, the larger mega caps, the sort of smaller subset of the S&P 500. None of those really, you are not going to talk about NVIDIA, but you know, you already know, you already know it it doesn't kind of make sense. From a liquidity point of view, I would hazard we have seen, this is the tail end in my view of that maybe China is the last shoe to drop on this sort of overt printing or covert printing. I think we're going to have a tricky summer, at least in the
0: U.S., right? We have a lot of treasuries we need to sell. So what is it, a trillion? Uh, 1.4 trillion treasury has to raise from now until the end of the year, probably closer to
1: November, if I'm really looking at this thing correctly, Danny. Yeah, Yeah, and I will tell you, not to cut you off, Stuart, but I think part of what the Fed did yesterday when we we can get into that, and I don't think they did that bad of a job, to be honest with you, people are bitching and moaning, Mm. was that I think he knows, and he he said twice in his presser, the beginning, it's going to continue with quantitative tightening. It's going to continue selling his portfolio. And he knows what Guy just said, he's competing with 1.4 trillion coming out. Granted, they still have 5.2 trillion of treasuries and 2.6 trillion of mortgage-backed securities. They're unwinding 95 billion at 60 and 35 respectively, treasury mortgage-backed securities a month. And I think he wants to see part of what is going on. I think he underestimated at the outset of what unwinding 9 trillion. I still don't believe they're ever going to do it, but now competing. So you have a lot of supply coming onto the market, supply and equities with IPOs. They come in, granted, a small one, but that's Mm -hmm. the point. Can the market absorb on treasuries and on equities this type of supply coming? And if there is other deals that do occur and so forth, I'm curious to see how this is going to be absorbed into the system here and love to get your thoughts on that.
2: I don't think it's going to go that well. So the reverse repo pulling is the thing that's happening right now to refill the TGA. That doesn't really affect open markets as much as the selling we're mentioning. I think at some point in the summer, we're going to see a liquidity drain. I think that's more deflationary than anything. Mm -hmm. And it means bad for risk assets. Not to come on three times and say, I'm warned about this. I do think that's what's going to happen. But then I think what we have learned this year, that is liquidity does rule. And they do have a pretty good handle on this. And we have China as well. And we have, you know, almost coordination. We saw Yellen's comments as well. She was warming to China uh, throughout this week and then bam then China starts stimulus. Like, There's definitely, our militaries may not be communicating, but it sure looks like our central bankers are.
1: Guy, I have a stab for you. Okay. So the bets against the two-year, right? Mm. Funds that are shorting the two-year is at its highest level since 2006. It's been building for 11 straight weeks. Let me put this other thing in Mm. perspective. So Fed Fund Futures, which have been trading all over the place. One month ago, today, there was a 32% chance that in June of 2024, Fed funds would be between 3.25 and 3.50, and a 31% chance between 3.50 and 3.75. So the 3.25 to 3.75 range was a 63% mm-hmm. chance. Today, that same number, 63% chance, falls in June 24 between 4.25 and 4.75. Wow! So you tell me in a one month change, we've had this much of a change. So there's two ways to look at it, in my opinion. People are begging for a soft landing or no landing. What the Fed said yesterday is what describes as a soft or no landing scenario, meaning economy is still strong. Yeah. Job growth is happening. People don't want that. They don't want to happen. so rates higher for longer. I'm a firm believer that rates higher for longer. Forget about the lag impact. The other asset classes, Stuart, that we're already seeing, X the S&P, just take that off your list mm-hmm. for a second, are suffering right now. Yeah. And they're signaling a slowdown. They are saying, banks are retrenching in auto. Oh, banks okay. are retrenching in commercial real estate. So there's a false deal but no one cares because it doesn't equate for some reason into the stock market. I'm wondering, When that will marry itself into the markets, if ever, because unequivocally, I can't say with 100% confidence, and Porter, Vinny, and Dan and I discussed this today, which will come out on Monday, when we do look back, whether it's two months, four months, Mm -hmm. or six months from now, the whole concept will be, and maybe the Fed will just keep printing and we never get there, (laughs) the economy couldn't sustain itself with rates being this high for this long. And that I'm certain of. So certain pockets can work within the market, but the overall health and what on the consumer side, again, because you do see the Gen Zs mostly, but you do see what's happening and how they're moving money around. Are you seeing stress on the consumer at this point? Not at all. So at Current, we're really strong on the 18 to 24
2: group. Obviously, we have family banking as well. And we have a tail all the way up to sort of 40. 40 years old is probably where we start to tap out. Intentionally, I should add. We've seen strong wage growth throughout the whole this year and obviously from last year. So all those wage price increases, wage inflation, from a blue-collar or working-class perspective, has probably kept up in my view, or they're taking overtime or whatever it is. There's no strong tick in UI or unemployment benefits. We saw that throughout the stimulus. We were there from 2020, 2021, gigantic, obviously, stimulus checks, all that other stuff. It has only ever trended down. And we were actually just looking at it yesterday. And there are some states who are almost getting zero. So full employment, working class. I think this is a tale of two economies here. It used to be in the bull market. It was asset price, inflation, white collars getting rich. If you didn't own assets, you were left behind or screwed, and that was mainly blue collar. I think we're inverting here. I think the tale of two economies is white collar is getting screwed a little bit here. There's some asset price inflation, don't get me wrong, because we're printing. No one's crying no for white collar. Yeah, and we're drawing down like airline ticket prices are 3x, like renting in New York City is 3600 a month for one better. So all that sort of, okay, white collar is going to eat a little bit of this, but the blue collar is doing, I think, really well. I think that maybe the uh, Infrastructure Act and the CHIPS Act and all that stuff is starting to come through as well.
0: I want to talk about, it's interesting, banks, it's going to cost banks more to operate in this environment. They're not going to feel the brunt of it. They're going to pass on those costs in the form of all these different fees, whatever they call junk, all these different things that you don't even see happening. That's coming to a theater near you. My sense is, though, you're situated, you being the guys and gals that current, to combat that. Does that make sense? Because yeah. There's this intersection that's going on, and you're setting up for exactly where the world is going. Thoughts on that? I think this is an American phrase. Skate it to where the puck is going to be, because
2: mm. that's where we're going. You've seen the White House with the junk fees. Right. Maybe centered around Ticketmaster. I saw Scott Wapner losing it the other day on, on Twitter. About, that's because he you, lost he, his
1: seats on SeatGeek. That, that, seat that was a different, different game. Thing. Right. Lionel Messi. That's what he was upset about. <laughs> I think he's going to get his tickets, though, basically. Yeah, okay, one good, way or good. another. Yeah. yeah.
2: A false story for him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah junk fees and jets centered around. That, because they're Airbnb as well, Mm -hmm. most egregious. They double the price of where you are. But financial services are guilty. Traditional incumbent financial services are guilty because they do not have the right tech or the business model to satisfy and to serve the vast majority of Americans, the ones that I was just talking about. Where the puck is going is fee-free banking, fee-free overdraft, fair and open and transparent credit. And so a lot of these regionals and the long tail of banks is 4,300 banks outside the top 10. They have archaic infrastructure. They have the wrong kind of business plan to satisfy and serve the needs of, of everyday Americans. And so they need those fees to stay alive. So there's going to be a big tail of MA over the next 10 years, especially when you see top-down White House pressure really coming at them on this.
0: They have blunt tools that they use. Yeah. And historically, they've been able to, because a lot of times people don't even feel, they don't even realize that they're paying. Now I think things are a bit more transparent. So when you see mm. these things, it's somewhat eye-opening. But historically, you don't even realize what's going on until after the fact. So I ask that because I do think the world is headed to where you all are. So that works for you. But to answer Danny's earlier question as to what do I think is going on, bond market is absolutely telling a story. And I don't want to get overly wonky here, but for the longest time, we thought two's tens, two-year versus 10-year would invert. It did. We thought it would invert to the tune of 1%. It went to 111. It lasted for a couple weeks, snapped back down to about 43 basis points. Yesterday, so today's Thursday as we're taping, so Wednesday, in the midst of this Fed presser, Tuesday's 10s went out to, I think, 96 basis points. Don't at me if I'm off by one or two. And here we are either side of 90. It was in a flash, too. In a flash. Mm. Bond market should not trade that way. The yield curve is inverting yet again. We're headed back to those levels. That is not a healthy sign. It speaks to, Danny, what you've been talking about for a while. Now, the stock market clearly doesn't care. I want to be clear. That thesis had me being very bullish, which I still am on equities, but that was the wrong way to be. Clearly, something else is going on. Historically, though, a yield curve that says this inverted for that amount of time that goes from flat to 111, down to 40, back to 90. That's not a healthy sign either. And the fact that we're probably going to stay around here is because the economy is weakening vis-a-vis the ISM numbers and all the different data that's coming in. That manifests itself in 10-year yields effectively going lower or staying. Inflation is still a problem. The Fed has told you that. Look at what the ECB has done. Bank of Canada surprise hike. Two-year yields continue to sort of grind higher. That inversion is going to continue. I don't know at what point it has an impact on the equity market. But almost by definition, at least the books that I read in
1: school suggest that it will, Danny. So everyone should know this or think about it logically, is that what the market's telling you is that if short-term rates or the the Fed effectively, the area that they control stays higher for longer, it will have an effect on slowing the economy. Therefore, 10-year yields are slowing because it's portending kind of a slowdown that's going to be occurring. The real-life problem with that are in the banks. And the banks presented this week at Morgan Stanley's conference and the big banks were okay, but the regional banks are all guiding down again. And we think about where rates are and the yield curve. It's a negative for banks. I mean, they look at three month over ten year. You talk about inversion, mm-hmm. and so that's a big problem. And we're seeing now post b post mortem on b and Silvergate and all these other banks and First Republic is that they still have a problem here. They're mark to market right for the securities that they own. It's yeah. still an issue, and the loan growth is starting to obviously slow. And the banks are pulling. Out liquidity, they're coming out of the auto market. They're coming out of commercial real estate market. It's happening. So I know those things are going to happen. And then, guy just mentioned Europe's in a recession. Germany is officially in a recession. And so as far stop as I'm for concerned. a second. Yeah.
0: So think about that. Right. Yeah. Europe's in a recession. Yeah. Without question. Germany I mean, without question is the other ones will follow. Well, uh, but yes, okay. it's in a recession. Yet and the they're hiking EC, rates. That's stagnation. exactly So what? So, but what is that telling you? They're, they say, listen, our economy sucks, but we got to start raising they have a problem. Now, no. maybe we don't have as big of a problem as they do, but it's the same problem. Maybe again, maybe it's a magnitude different there, but they've made the decision that, you know what? We
1: understand we're in a recession. We need to continue down this course of raising rates. They are physically located uh, with Ukraine, right? So Ukraine historically has been a partner, of exporting and a business partner. That's basically gone and that's having an impact. The other thing is that net gas prices are up again today because y- there could be A a supply problem right there as we get into gasoline prices, gasoline prices. So Stuart, I have a better grip on what's happening in Europe, but as a partner to the U S and China, as a business partner to the U S granted China's stimulating. So we'll see what happens there, but how does that not come back to roost Stuart?
2: Last time I was on here, I think from memory, I was like, I think the U S is okay. It'll model through, but we should watch Europe. And Mm -hmm. I think now we're on back here. We're watching Europe. I wanna double down on that. I was bearish euro dollar at one ten and one twelve. We went to one oh six, fifty. It's now bounced back up because the dollar is coming up with what's going on in the fixed income market. Definitely not what's happening in the equity <laughs> market. <laughs> yep. Or even even oil. And so I think Europe is the one to watch. It's definitely something that obviously hiking into in into a recession is not going to be great for anyone. I'm not sure about the war. I was worried more about the war at the beginning of the year. Obviously, who knows? There's another counteroffensive. It becomes really geopolitical, which I'm no expert on. The proximity to the war and all that stuff, I'm unsure how it affects. But Europe's in trouble here. And I think it's something that could be a knock-on effect for us. If I could just go back to the US one more time. Inflation was lower, but jobs are really high. So if you look at the core services, core CPI, you've got two main things. It's wage price inflation. From our data, it's saying it's going to continue. We're not seeing unemployment, and we're seeing strong wage growth in what you could arguably call the poorest sector of America. Then you've got shelter, and that's just experience walking around New York. It's not going down. It's going up. So the two main parts of core CPI, I think, are just going to be really strong. That's high for longer. So the White House is jumping on the soapbox saying, hey, look at inflation. It's low and everything's good. I think the volatility that you're seeing in the move index and and the, the fixed income market is the realization is that it's the Powell speech and the Fed that did a good job coupled with the CPI and the wage and, and uh, unemployment data. That's going, okay, this is higher for longer and it's probably going up a lot more. They said two hikes, right? By the end of the year, it could be more.
1: I think the terminal now is 560 versus what was in the low fives.
0: Before. I say all the time on Fast Money, we play a game that if you had told me the following and then said, okay, guy, based on what I just told you, where's the S&P okay. going to be? If you had told me yesterday's statement, I thought a pause was coming. I think we all agreed on that. I didn't see potentially two more hikes this year coming. I don't think the market necessarily did because at one point on Wednesday, S&P was down about 45 or 50 handles-ish, and it appeared as though it caught them off guard. It's shocking to me. Given the run equities have had over the last three and a half months, that even with the statement, which I'm sure they thought was going to come off as extraordinarily hawkish, the market reacted as favorable as it did. Now, you mentioned China. I get it. That's definitely part of it. But I got to tell you something. The recovery yesterday during the day was prior to any of this China nonsense. So I read all the bulk cases as well. I get it. Forward-looking, 2024, reacceleration, Fed out of the way. They're going to be cutting rates this time next year.
1: Blah, blah, blah. I get it, but I don't see that. I don't think that's happening. One of the things that should be getting hit, which is getting hit, you're just not seeing transactions, occurs housing. Yeah. You're seeing it more in commercial real estate in terms of that has other issues, not just rates being higher. But in 2006, when the Fed was raising rates and the one thing that people could point to, the one instrument that was predicated was home prices. It was everything to do with the CDS market, everything to do with the banks. It was everything. You could point to it. You could see it. What's different this time is there's no transactions occurring because people have golden handcuffs and are staying in their homes. And to Stuart's point, it's coming out in the form of rents being higher more than, so it's not catastrophic. It's not happening right in front of you, but eventually those rates being this high for that long will matter. And so what's different now than in 2006 and seven and eight is the moral hazard. It's that simple. We never had QE, QE one started, QE two, QE three. We're in QE four. We already did that with the banks. We're gonna be in QE five. The global central banks that are all aligned on just, we're gonna print our way out of this. The irony for that, and to hit on Stuart's point about inflation, the more that China does what they do, the more that we do what we do, it's inflationary and it feeds on itself. So pick your poison here. You want to inflate assets, including the stock market. Great. What is your actual relative gain? I don't know. And remember, the comps were easy this month and next month for CPI. We knew that coming in. Then it starts to get harder again. Remember, because CPI had peaked. It started to come. So it won't look as good year over year doesn't matter right now. If I'm going to put a bullish hat on and want to willfully ignore, I can point, I can paint a very bullish picture on things that we're going to have a soft landing. Mm -hmm. It really comes down to one thing. It is the belief that the global central banks, particularly the Fed, have your back. That's it. There's no other reason you can tell me they're going to bail me out. I'm going to fuck up. They're going to bail me out. I'm going to get a stimulus check. I'm going to get a P loan. And some of those things were necessary. Mm -hmm. And during the financial crisis, I was very against TARP and TALF and PPIP and all this stuff. In hindsight, it was the right thing to do because it was cataclysmic, but it set a precedent that we can't get out of. We cannot wean off of it, Guy. For a fundamental analyst like myself, I don't put myself in the category of anyone that's that good, but I'm saying a, a bottom-up, tangible things that are tethered, I have a real problem because you feel like you have no basis for doing the fundamental work. It's not rewarded anyway. It's, with well, that-
0: it's frustrating because, first of all, when you have the views that we've had for quite some time, it's counter to what the populace wants to hear, right? People don't want to hear the bear story because people are geared, they want things to go higher. I I totally understand that. Buy side, but the populace as well. It's in everybody's benefit for everything to be going well. So when they hear us talk, they first of all want to drown that out. But when the market moves the way it has, not only do they want to drown us out, but they want to then ridicule, ha ha, what a bunch of assholes, you guys are missing the move, which... I guess is true, but what I think to your point, willfully ignore, and that's an interesting phrase, in order to remain bullish, you have to almost willfully ignore everything that's out there that should be at some point, and I'm gonna choose this word by the way, catastrophic to all the risk assets that we've been talking about for the last half hour. I think it comes back to that
2: liquidity point is being a macro or bottoms up person We've got to a point, I think, in the markets where liquidity, optional liquidity is dominant, when, especially when it comes to the equity market, maybe not in the fixed income market. And I think that's why the move index and fixed mm-hmm. income is worth watching versus the equity market, because you're going to get a true macro read or truer, I should say, macro read on the economy. And I think from an equity point of view, liquidity is almost everything now. Retail, I'm, I talk to my friends in hedge funds and in, in the banks. Retail zero-day options are just going bananas, absolute bananas. And they're the ones that are pegging the market. I think we talked about this earlier. And some of those bigger companies, JP Morgan, Citadel, et cetera. Uh, And so there is a dynamic shift. There's been a dynamic shift whereby the tail is finally wagging the dog. And and that's why it's so confusing, right, in the equity market specifically. And so we've got this self-reinforcing bubble. The equity markets were businesses. We financialized them. We created derivatives on top of them. We pour gasoline on top of that because we've got sovereign printing money that feeds into that. And so what we've done is we've created this bubble, this echo chamber of itself. It's trading itself. It it feeds on itself. And so it's so detached from the fundamentals and the economic reality of what you're mentioning. Now, that's only good. It's great, right? Because you can be long only and always win. It's only good until that linkage breaks. All bubbles pop at some point. So I guess what we're really saying, and I think we're on agreement is, How long does liquidity last for? Sometimes you get those jarring movements, and we saw that with the debt ceiling discussion. All of a sudden, we were like, okay, maybe something's going to happen in the pipelines of this, right? If we have a, a, a technical default of the US government or something like that. As soon as that was resolved, Look at what happened.
1: Not and only well, was it resolved, there's no cap.
2: Yeah, no cap. You can print forever. Yeah, that's print right. forever. So print think forever. about it. It's insane. The, yeah. So the two crises <laughs> yes. which happened in yeah.
1: the last four months have been the banking crisis, which was resolved yeah. by guaranteeing all deposits, yes. I don't care what they say, and the debt ceiling, which was resolved by yeah. having no ceiling. Yeah. That's what right. are we doing? So yeah. anyway, so sorry. So this but, is what it is. So This so, is exactly, so This is what simple. the market is, re- re-
2: this is what they're reacting to. They're like, oh my gosh, Yeah. liquidity is the game. You've just said I can have infinite liquidity after this point. Let's go. This is what's happening. So, inflationary. so
0: you mentioned, what are we doing? That'd be a great title, title for, for a second, yeah. which by the way, we are doing, what are we doing? As I mentioned earlier for Jeff. you folks that just came in late, perhaps <laughs> Danny Moses, Dan, Nathan, Vinny, and Porter Correct. on Monday, it'll drop. What are we Correct. doing? You got to listen to that because it's great. Now, let me ask you this, everything now that we've talked about, it leads in my opinion to one road. I know, you know where I'm going in 2022. Global central banks bought $71 billion worth of gold. I think it was 1,131 tons. It was a historic amount. This year, they're on pace to do similar. Led by, by the way, the Bank of China, Hmm. who every month I see continues to sell U.S. treasuries, good for them, and continues to buy gold. It has not manifested itself in the price yet. Gold is still, it's there, it's hanging in there, it's on this uptrend line, seemingly can't take out the prior high that we saw. But I got to tell you something. You asked what could break or what could trigger. The gold market, I think, is on the precipice of something. Now, you're going to say, guy, take your effing tinfoil hat off.
1: I understand that. If you pay attention, which is the cheapest thing you can do, mm-hmm. it's happening, Danny Moses. If bears want to bitch and moan about how it feeds on itself on the upside, rest assured that bulls will bitch and moan when it feeds on itself on the downside. Because inevitably, the zero-dated options can be puts all the other way. Or they can be puts. It's not, so it yeah. feeds on itself the other way. In that scenario, when that does happen, I think that's going to be gold's moment in the sense of, okay, where can I go? What can I do? But Stuart, Guy and I share the same view on gold. I realize it's not a utility, quote, this, that, and the other. There's no utility for it, although jewelry. Talk to me your thoughts on gold. You've traded it. You've, you've been around it.
2: Yeah, I think it's collateral. You said two things, I think, Guy, on this conversation. I think you can tie them together with where gold is going. One is China is selling treasuries. They do not see treasuries, U.S. treasuries as collateral mm-hmm. anymore. They've replaced that with gold. So now they've created stimulus programs and all the rest of it today. That means they're going to have to go and buy some more gold, I think, in the short term, at least. So there's this underlying central bank bid from the BRICS uh, economies, plus BRICS plus, anyone who wants to join them. They're all going to be gold-centered on their collateral. Maybe gold can come off exceptionally fast on a short or medium term, given the price action. But over the long term, I just think there's just this underlying bid for it. And I don't think that's going away. These are current account surplus countries. These are countries that have resources that sell stuff to the rest of the world. They need to park that money somewhere. And so they're converting some of those assets into gold, or a lot of those.
0: What I've been saying, and I believe this, I think central banks have been hedging their own ineptitude in the form of the gold. Now, people say, what are you talking about? The gold price doesn't... It has not... I'll say it again for the hundredth time. Yes, it has not manifested itself in the price yet. But what I will tell you is there is a pool of money out there in the form of a lot of these hedge funds, larger institutions, that gold is on the radar screen, but it's in the periphery. It doesn't become a bullseye for them until it goes significantly higher. And then that whole group of people will pile in. So in order to get those people in, the price has to start going higher. And then we talked price begets price or Yep. things start to chase, that's when you're going to start to see the chase because the gold market is not big enough to handle the amount of inflows that I think
1: will be coming at some point down the road. I will say this. Gold has actually held up relative to what the dollar has done recently. Uh, if you told me where the dollar was relative, right? Where Dixie's trading? 102. Where, yeah. yeah. Where it is right now. Where is it right now? 102.50 or something. Yeah. I would yeah. say, you know, gold, it's hanging in there. And guy, before we get out of here. Where are we going? Oh, we got to go. We Hold got on. on, I got a couple things for you yeah. guys.
0: No, I know where no. you're going, Dan. You don't know where yeah, I'm going. Yeah, I do know you're going. Where am I going? You're going to say, you know what? Last week, okay. I-, I gave yeah. you the trifecta in the Belmont. I told you how to play the Belmont Stakes. I gave you four horses. I told you how to bet it. All right. And guess what happened? That trifecta came in, and I actually didn't know the number. I said, "You, yeah, I bet you paid about $134. And you said, actually, it was 133.17. You made went, that up? You didn't know what it was? No, I didn't know what That's it was. I did the good. math. I knew what the odds were, so I did the math in my head. Yeah. Brain man shit. Yeah.
1: I did fundamental analysis oh, on something. It was. Tapid trice. I know. We, we, we talked about has the length. It has the history. So did the winning horse, right? Because remember. That story by that woman. It's amazing. I was going to say. Honestly, you know what,
0: you know what should have made sense to me? You think about a woman-owned secretariat. 50 years later, it made it. This Training, is only in retrospect. trainer. No, no, no. Trainer,
1: yeah. But she was right, but Correct. She, This trainer was a first It's amazing. Woman. You love so, looking back at the obvious things that are great stories. Only in retrospect. No, but, exactly. but please. Anyway, if the two horse had finished second instead of third, if I know horses, balls, whatever. King Anyway, so out. we don't need to talk about yeah. that. What else we got to wrap up here?
0: No, I'm going to. Okay. So, so the other night, I, Dan's going to be pissed at me and maybe they'll cut this out, but I started, I think the title of the show is Welcome to the Machine. Yeah. And I mentioned Pink Floyd's Wish yep. You Were Here. Yep. Stuart, I want you to think about this. I'm not putting you on the spot, but listen to my question and have an answer. Danny Moses. Yes. You're on a desert island. What's the perfect album that you're taking with you?
1: Pearl Jam 10. Pearl Sorry. Jam 10. You yes. and You and Dan Nathan. That is the one thing Dan and I Pearl yeah, Jam 10. Pearl Jam 10. Probably Bob Marley Legend would be the second one, but those are my two. Can I have two? I, you can have whatever right. you
0: want. Stuart.
1: Stewart, Man, you put me on the spot. Don't um, say ACDC or no, NXS or any of those Aussie, <laughs> Aussie stuff. How about Yeah. <laughs> Yeah.
2: Smashing pumpkins. Oh, stop it. You're embarrassing in, the, yourself. in the infinite sadness. No, because it's like a double album. There's you said a desert item, right? There's a hundred songs on that album. So you'd never okay. get bored.
1: Fair enough. I didn't think about it that way, but anyway. I yeah. put out I'm assuming it, I'm
0: there for what, a long time. What's yours? I put out on my Twitter account, I put out a number of albums. You can ch- we'll put it in the show notes. I just like saying yeah. that to piss off Dan, but I'll yeah. give you a couple. Okay. Darkness on the Edge of Town is a perfect album. Okay. The first six Led Zeppelin albums, up until like Presence or Coda, are perfect albums. Street Survivors from the great Leonard Skinnerd is a perfect album. Boston's first you can album. only take
1: one. You can only take one. And what the car's album? first album. What is your album that you take on the island with you? The only Darkness. Why we're the last Bears. So we're on the island of Bears well, and album. I will, it's something you,
0: depressing maybe like Darkness a, on the Edge of Town. Perfect, darkness right? is a perfect it. album. That's go. perfect. By speaking of darkness, You and I, Danny, are darkness. Stuart is somewhere in between. (laughs) But in a few minutes, we're going to bring the light to this conversation in the form of Anastasia Amoroso. So stick around, folks. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts, with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections' membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain
3: access to their members-only
0: platform, visit (laughs) iConnections.io.
3: Welcome back to On The Tape. Danny and I are joined by Anastasia Amoroso. She is the chief investment strategist at iCapital. And welcome back. This is your third appearance of On yes. The Tape.
4: Yes. Time flies this yeah. year.
3: It is flying in the face of us here a little I bit. I think today. three
1: <laughs> very different market environments, too, if I were to look at the three days. She was That's on right.
3: October 21,
1: January of this year.
3: Yep. And then here we are yeah, now. Right. It's funny. Like uh, Our listeners know that Danny, Guy, and myself have been particularly bearish. We started getting very bearish. Constructive. In mi- And no, in mid-2021, we started getting very bearish. And we were flying in the face of what was still going on in the broad indices. But 2022, we just stayed the course. We were sellers on every one of those rallies. It all worked out. We were not pressing lows back in October. But there were things that we remained skeptical about in the January and February rallies. And the stock market did not change our view. You, though, were on in January. We get a lot of our listeners saying, will you please bring on people who have been bullish and are constructive on the markets and constructive on the economy and push back at a little bit of what you guys have been thinking. So this is Wednesday into the close here. Fed Chair Powell just got done with this highly anticipated meeting where expectations were not high for a increase in, in the Fed funds rate. But it sounded like a pretty hawkish pause. Talk to us about what your expectations were in the meeting and what you thought you heard from Fed Chair Powell and what they're saying about future rate increases.
4: Yeah, it was a hawkish pause. And the expectation, of course, was for them to do nothing at the June meeting and to pencil in another 25 basis points of rate hikes as pre-commit to July. That was the expectation. That's not exactly what happened. You know, the reason why it took initially the market by surprise, because now we got 50 basis points. Of extra increases penciled in for some time the course of the year. So that initially took the market by surprise in a bad way. And so we saw the Nasdaq pulling back, the S&P pulling back. And then as Fed Chair Powell spoke, the market really reversed itself And I think the reason for that is this realization is that no matter which way you slice and dice it, we're so much closer to the end than we are to the beginning. You know, what's another 25 basis points? Is it really a game changer? Is it really a deal breaker for the market? And I think that's why we've had this sort of turnaround. The other thing that I took away is if before, at some point, we were talking about 75 basis points. Every meeting, just then we step down to 50 basis points, then we step down to 50, 25. Maybe we're now stepping down to a quarterly pace. And that feels a lot more digestible for the markets than what we've been through.
1: Twice in his opening comments, he made a comment about quantitative tightening without saying quantitative tight. We're going to continue to sell securities. And I think that the timing of Treasury that now has to fill back up the coffers, we know we're competing against that. I think without saying it, what he was trying to say is, let's see, I'm gonna keep doing this quantitative tightening and now I'm competing with Treasury offloading these securities, right? So selling 60 billion of a month of Treasury and 35 billion of mortgage-backed securities a month. I think that's part of it, of what he wants to see happen over the next six weeks, in my opinion, because if rates start to move substantially higher, he knows that's a tightening of some type of condition. So that was one of the things that I took away. I thought it was came out as predicted, in my opinion, a little bit more in terms of 5.6 being terminal rate versus 5.4, But he's basically telling people and investors that he thinks we're in for a soft landing. As a matter of fact, he's saying, so you can't have it both ways if you're an investor. You want the economy to keep growing, but you want it to not grow too much. So now I think we're back into a point where people are actually going to be rooting for bad economic data again at this moment. That's what I actually believe over the next six weeks. Good economic data may turn out to be bad, I think, for the rate market. I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, there's this question of has there been too much market exuberance and maybe that's why we got that extra 50 basis points penciled in to a little bit stop the animal spirits and say, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But I also do think you're right. This, he mentioned this several times that the quantitative tightening is still ongoing. So to me, the biggest way to clip the market swing, so to speak, is to say we're going to stay the course, even if they just do nothing else. The fact that the Fed funds rate is a five and a quarter percent, the fact that QT is ongoing in the background, that should continue to exert pressure on the economy.
3: It's interesting you said the animal spirits in the stock market. Is it presenting a problem for the Fed here? Because again, if the stock market, if the S&P was at 4,000, right, not at 4,400, we have a situation where they don't have to worry too much. We've seen housing cool down a little bit, right? So risk assets in general are definitely an issue when they're inflating and they seem to be at unsustainable levels. But why is it that five and a quarter percentage points of Fed funds rate in 14 or 15 months has not really cooled animal spirits? Does that present a problem?
4: I think the simple answer to that is the U.S. economy and the U.S. consumer is not that interest rate sensitive. You look across the pond, you look in the U.K., you look at Europe, and you've got 70, 80, 90% of mortgages that are adjustable rate mortgages. So if you're a European consumer, you're actually really starting to feel the pain of these higher rates. If you're a U.S. consumer, It's tough. You may not afford to buy the house that you wanted to buy at 7% mortgage rate, but guess what? Your month-to-month expenses are actually not resetting. And then you look at the S&P 500 companies, at about 12% of their debt is floating rate. So the bulk of that is also not resetting. And then we've also extended the maturity of the U.S. government debt over the last 10 or 14 years. So that's not overly interest rate sensitive. So I think that's why you've had this massive economic resilience despite the Fed funds rate of five and a quarter percent. But the other thing, speaking of animal spirits and exuberance, household net worth peaked at $150 trillion post-COVID and retrenched to $135 trillion. That's a stale number after the market rally that we've seen. So all of a sudden, you have a consumer that's 3.5% unemployment rate. The wages are growing at 4%. There's $1.5 trillion in excess savings. And by the way, hopefully some consumers participate in the stock market. So you put all that together and I think that's why there's resilience. So for now it's 50 basis points extra of rate increases, but I think there is a risk they may have to do more.
1: I, I think it feels like we're letting the stock market be the economy a little bit, meaning we're assuming the economy is still very strong because the stock market is up. And I know that's a very simple way to look at it, but the consumer has a lot of debt. And so we talk about white collar workers, Blue-collar workers are in great shape right now, right? They get any job they want. They're making more money. White-collar workers are getting laid off. You just talked about how mortgage rates, people that are locked in their home, whether it's golden handcuffs or not, are still low, but consumer debt is mounting. So we are seeing, with the exception of the stock market, a lot of things sell off. A lot of things be bad. We have a big problem in commercial real estate. These things are slower moving, but they're elephants. Stock market is immediate scorecard, immediate report card of what's going on. I think there's a mismatch here, in my opinion. The stock market could as easily be 3600 on the S&P right now as it is 4400 Could easily be. And you could have the same exact environment. You can make a case for both sides. If that was the case, I think the narrative, the approach, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm saying the narrative would just be different. It's like there's a lot of debt out there. Rates are high. It's, there's a lot of variable data out there. And I think, we're, this is my personal opinion, I still think the entire rebellion of the spending post-COVID. We're seeing slowdown in airline. We're seeing slowdown in leisure. We are seeing it. Correct me if I'm wrong in real time, China's slowing down. Yes, they'll stimulate. But I'd love to get your thoughts on that because then it's going to dovetail to your sector allocations. And there is a lot of consumer debt out there that that is still to be reckoned with.
4: There is. And to your point, there are definitely pockets, and maybe it's not just pockets, they're a little bit larger, of issues to worry about. I think the consumer debt that you're pointing out is the credit card debt. We have been on a credit card binge. And first of all, that was okay as long as the labor market is strong, and it is for now. But I think one of the costs that will start to add up for the consumer is if you are carrying a balance, the interest rate on that balance right now is 21%. If you look at auto loan costs of capital, it's surged. If you look at housing, it's surged. But those things are not resetting. The credit card debt and the cost of paying that down, that is is resetting. So I do worry a little bit about that and the uptick in some of the delinquencies that we could see there. Look, I do worry about the commercial real estate space. We know that we have a trillion dollars of loans, CRE loans that are coming due over the next couple of years. And you take a property that has a 4 or 5% cap rate or 4 or 5% income yield, and all of a sudden it is financed by debt that was at 3.5%, that's at 7 or maybe 8% today. So you might have the cash flow on that property that's actually upside down. So as you go to refinance that, will the regional bank... Take on that debt? Is the regional bank going to be there to even want to be willing to take on that debt? So I think for some of those CRE loans, the answer is no. And I do fully expect to see an uptick in the commercial real estate defaults. But that's—it's not as systemic of an issue, I would say, as what we saw in two thousand and eight. But
1: there is a little bit. It's nothing like two thousand eight. But banks are pulling liquidity out of the market. They're not. They're pulling liquidity out of the auto lending market. We see it every single day. Gone. They're not giving loans. Deals aren't closing on the medium, small, mid deals that we would never make the Wall Street Journal, but are not being closed now because banks don't want to commit financing. That has a lag effect, which that lag effect is from the Fed. That also has a lag effect. I just don't think that we're reconciled. We haven't reconciled that yet because it's not right in front of us. And My point is that when you think about the S&P and you think about, okay, if I'm going to pay a high multiple for the S&P here, it means that I believe we're in the trough period of what earnings may look like. Okay, that's fair if that's the argument you want to make. It doesn't take a lot to change the kind of the vantage point, or say, okay, three multiple points different right here is 660 points in the S and P, right? We're right back where we're going to be back to 3700. What does it take from here to keep the market moving higher from here? Because I can't imagine a rosier picture from here on an earnings basis, on a multiple basis, to get me to the S and P, and then I want to again. Dovetail into the sector specific.
4: You look at the relative strength indicator on not just the Nasdaq, but now the, at the S and P. We are pretty stretched levels, and it has been a fast and furious rally. And
1: I didn't know. I didn't really feel it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it kind of felt <laughs> yeah,
4: like, kind know, of like you that. you sure? Yeah, yeah. Just, right. just a little bit. Yeah. But the reason for that is every not everybody. There's been this FOMO that's back in the market, and if you were a systematic trader, you were back in this market as soon as you could. If you were a hedge fund, you found yourself chasing the TMT trade. And that's what sort of propelled the market. But I think it's been a lot too much, too fast, arguably. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some sort of a pullback here. Having said that, the rosier picture that I would paint is it's a bit about the tech trade. And we can shelve that for a second and revisit this. But if you extrapolate tech from the S&P 500 valuations, the multiple on the S&P X tech and X communication services is 16.9 times, which is in line with a 10-year average of about 17 times. And by the way, those sectors, whether it's materials, whether it's energy, whether it's banks, they have not performed at all this year. So to me, the rosy picture that could potentially emerge is that the rest of the S&P starts to catch up more meaningfully with tech. And it's not expensive. And guess what? People hate cyclicals. We came into the year, short the cyclical straight, and that continued to be further short throughout the course of the year. So if I were to construct a more bullish scenario, you've got the economic growth that's surprising to the upside. You've got the Fed that is mostly done, so less pressure on multiples, and you've got the earnings revisions that were negative for the bulk of 2022, maybe partially 2021. Now that ratio flipped into positive territory. So if we are in Trophy PS and it starts to reset higher and multiples stay around these current levels, that's your rosy case scenario.
1: One thing on that, because your comment about the RSIs and the rotation out of some tech into cyclicals, financials in general, my problem it's happening, which is very healthy for the market. We talked about it. Are they going to catch up or is tech going to come down? Is that if that proves to be the wrong move from a fundamental perspective, we get bank second quarter earnings back. What am I doing in these things? Cyclicals, because things are slowing in the industrial space 1000%. Like things are slowing. I don't have all the data on each name. But what is the buy point then if if the momentum starts to turn? Because that's the problem I have with momentum is it when it ends and it rolls off. Oh, I'm going to buy that tech company at 29 times earnings or 22 times sales. No, there is no... Buy point. So that to me is the part or if I was bullish here and I've been participating in this market like I wish I had, that would be the thing that sticks in the back of my mind that I'm fearful of because there is no buy point if the momentum actually does start to turn. That's what I have a problem with.
4: Well, I think the buy point is not right here. You look at the NASDAQ, it's gone parabolic. You look at big tech kind of led the way this year and then the semiconductors really caught on. You know, that move has been just outsized. So that's not a comfortable place to chase the technology trade right now. But if we do pull back 5%, maybe on some of the names, 10 or 20%, and if you believe that this is an economy that's not about to head into a recession, and again, the Fed is close to done, or fine, it's 25 basis points every quarter, I think those pullbacks become viable, And that's a very different environment in which you were right to not buy the dips and to sell the rallies.
3: So let's take a step back here on the economy. And then I want to get back into the markets. January of this year, you were on with us and you were very much in the soft landing camp. I I believe that you thought a lot of the extreme selling into year end, it it crescendo in October, but some NASDAQ names kept on selling off into year end. And you thought that kind of discounted maybe some worst case scenarios for the economy. So here we are now, the stock market is screaming soft landing. There's a group of folks who think it's a no-landing scenario. because right. That, that um, was like
4: a March yeah, scenario. A, where are
3: we now? What do you think the most, like you just said that there's a chance that we avoid recession. Recession is going to come sooner or later. If it doesn't happen in 2023, we had this extreme selling into year end that discounted a recession that didn't happen. So I'm curious, back to Danny's buy point in a way, it's like, it's a hard scenario now because are we going to be fixated on the 2024 recession?
4: As the Fed hikes rates historically, and then they pause, and the market breathes a sigh of relief. We managed to avoid the recession. We're not there yet. And you have this stage of euphoria. And I feel like that's where we're in today. And that could last for months, where the economy is still hanging in there. And people have been calling for a recession for the last, feels like, 12 months. And at some point, as the market moves higher, more and more people give up on that recession call. That is happening right now. You saw the investment banks mark down recession scenarios.
3: But it's interesting. Right after the Fed chair Powell got done speaking just about an hour ago, Jeffrey Gunlock of Double Line Capital was on with Scott Wapner on the closing bell. And he like seemed as, bit as perplexed as us. He's like, a lot of stuff that I'm looking at is screaming recession, a lot of data that he's looking at. David Rosenberg of Rosenberg Research, who's been on the pod, we love Rosie, and I believe he gets a very negative rap as just a perma bear. But he's been saying that a lot of the data that a lot of very bullish strategists are looking at is lagging. A lot of the leading indicators are suggesting that things are slowing. So I'm just curious how you square with that a little bit.
4: Yeah, I think one of the most important indicators to look at whether we're heading into a recession or not is just how tight the policy is relative to the neutral rate. So a month or so ago, the New York Fed updated their estimates of the neutral rate. You know, you're neither stimulating the economy nor you're restricting it. And that rate in terms of in, in real rate terms is actually extremely low. It's about 1%. So if you think about where we are today, Fed funds rate of five and a quarter, core PC at 4.6%, we're looking at the real rate of about 0.6%, which is below this neutral rate. So I think for us to get significantly further into a recession camp, we have to see that real rate move substantially above this neutral rate. And look, that happened. That happened in 2006. You're two percentage points or so above the neutral rate. That happened in 1999 and 2000, where you were significantly above the neutral rate, which, by the way, the neutral rate was higher at that point. But that's what I would be wanting to see to say the recession is probably here and now and it's about to happen. But we're not just not there yet. And, and
3: folks have been, I guess, misfocused on this 210 inversion. Is that rather than really focused on this neutral rate and where we are relative to it? Because, again, people have been talking about the how wide the inversion has been and for how long. And then the last 11 times we've had a recession. Is that part of this disconnect, you think? Whoa.
4: The yield curve is definitely one of the predictors, but there's also a lag. There's 15 months, I think, on average between the yield curve inversion and when the recession starts, which I guess, according to that math, we should be right around there. But at the same time, in the mid-90s, you did have, you know, the yield curve inversion and you had the Fed that eventually backed off and the economy that rebounded. So. I guess it's not a foolproof metric to say that just because the yield curve inverted, the recession is imminent. So I would stick with what is the level of restrictive policy from the Fed. And there's something that the Fed Chair Powell really said this today that was really interesting because somebody asked a question, why is it that you have inflation that's still not at 2% but the Fed funds rate that's set to come down in 2024? And the answer to that was as inflation comes down, the real rate becomes more restrictive. And so for them to avoid, that's why they would presumably cut rates. Whether they do or not, I think is gonna determine if we have a recession.
1: I really think it comes down to jobs, right? That's what the number one thing they look at, unemployment rate, job growth. He cites it all the time until we see that, but I'll go back to are we in a recession or certain areas certainly are. We called it a rolling recession even six months ago. GDP is not strong. So definition of recession, which we find out later, is two negative quarters of GDP, I believe, is what the whatever they come up with, one of the things. So we're teetering. And so, yeah, it hasn't officially happened. But that, to me, is irrelevant to stock prices. So I'll tell you this. Let's say you walked in here today, your first day on the job as a strategist. Where are you allocating right now, both within the U.S., globally? What are you looking at here? Are you going to bonds? Or are you going in equities? Like. Because in this case, I think the bonds are attractive based upon the things that we're hearing here.
4: This was almost a lot easier to answer in January, right. October of last year than in January. I wish today. I had listened in
1: January, but please continue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we listened. We just didn't. We, no, sorry. Yeah, we listened. Yeah.
4: Perhaps I'll start with the highest conviction area right now. And that is you got to get paid. You still have to get paid in places that can get you more than inflation and that can get you more than cash. And that's private lending. That's direct lending. That's private credit. And it has been a great environment for private credit because the regional banks are stepping back. So you're looking at yields on some of these middle market loans that are 10, 11, maybe 13%. And it's a great environment because they're floating rate instruments and you have Fed funds rate that's holding a five and a quarter percent, possibly higher. And if the spread before that they were able to charge was 500 basis points over this this Fed benchmark, now it's maybe 600 basis points because private credit is the provider of liquidity, it's provider of capital when everybody else is stepping back. So that's one of the pillars I would consider for the portfolio because cash is 5%, as great as that is, inflation is 5%. So it's actually not that great. So I would consider private credit as a high conviction idea. Within the equity markets, again, it's tough that you say, if you're walking into right. it, yeah. to just ride right this moment, I would look to cyclicals and I would look to perhaps just the broad S&P. But let's t- actually take S&P, XTAC, the equal of-
3: weight, And you made a great point about basically, and I saw some of this analysis earlier in the year, that if you take out those top seven names that make up 25% of the S&P and you look at the other let's call it 490, they troughed at about 13 times last year. This is the equal. So it actually got to a sort of trough multiple that we've seen in pre-recessionary periods, discounting that. So yes, if you take that out, the S&P is hard right now because you have $8 trillion of market cap in about six names that are up on average 40-some percent on the year. And so- it's very top end heavy, and I guess I wonder a little bit is if we didn't have this AI mania for the last few months that has infected those biggest names, what would be leading? Do you understand what I'm saying? Because yeah. energy is not participating, financials are not participating, cyclicals, as you mentioned, healthcare, s- healthcare is not small caps just got off the mat but yeah. they don't really act well it's still they're still 20 percent they russell 2000
1: off of its 2021 highs here if you're a professional investor you have to allocate if you're missing you're chasing that's part of what's happening here. Right. you've talked yeah, about that's, that that's so you can't not participate here so the point is that they can't stay in cash right, they right. Have to, their benchmarks are getting drilled and so to add on to dan's question here taking that into account you got to marry that because that's the technical aspect where yeah. it marries fundamentals but no one can tell me from a fundamental basis here for the most part. I mean, you could probably paint a very bullish scenario. Like I said, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, 20 multiple for 16 on the S&P, fine, if you think we've dropped. But I still believe that we're still feeling the effects. And you mentioned private credit, great for the private credit companies, not great for the borrowers floating. And so you have to assume yeah. that you're, they're underwriting correctly to the
4: yeah. to the right number. No, the, I mean, Look, the risks are lurking in parts of the credit markets, but it, I'm particularly concerned about the leveraged loan market because you're right, a lot of that debt was issued when the net interest coverage ratio was at three and a half or four times. You fast forward to today with Fed funds rate of five and a quarter, the net interest coverage ratio was one. And by the way, I think for a third of the index is less than one. So I do worry about the level of defaults in the publicly traded leveraged loan market. So I don't want to be in that space because it gets marked to market, it gets disrupted by technicals. But to come back to the equity markets, I think it's Danny made a great point about the equal-weight versus just the market-cap weighted S and P. And Savita Subramanian from Bank of America did great work on this, saying that you could actually see the double of performance from the equal-weight S and P versus the S and P as the rest of the sectors catch up. And that resonates with me. You know, Danny, to your point, why would the rest of the sectors catch up? I'm actually going to go to China, and I was recently in Hong Kong and Singapore spending time with clients and a lot of the GPs that focus on China investing. The sentiment is as bad as can be. The economic data is as bad as can be. The second quarter is on track for 3.6% GDP growth versus 5% stated objective. But if you look at the news flow for the last couple of weeks, you've got electric vehicle subsidies, you've got property price support measures, you've got the central bank that's saying we will essentially do whatever it takes to support the economy. So I think one of the contrarian trades that can power a cyclical, at least trade, is China. If China comes back online, or even before it does, if the stimulus gets ratcheted up, materials, energy, industrials, they can catch a bit as a result of that. And then forget the AI craze, then those sectors may actually be able to catch up.
3: It's really hard to forget the AI craze because it's, again, it's Wednesday. The market just closed. We had that dip after the announcement. And Nvidia closed up six percent from its lows. This is a trillion dollar You're market my cap. Obsession. I know, There's but it's it literally shoe closed shoe on its dead shoe. ass highs. Yeah. Like it would have kept on going if the <laughs> market stayed. Don't stayed worry. Open. Like I was going after like our- But you know what the thing is? Danny and I have PTSD. I was born. Into a grave of a market. And it was, I started at a hedge fund in 1997 and I saw the internet bubble just inflate. And then I lived through it bursting. And Danny, you on the buy side with into the- And on the sell side. Yeah, but in, in, in the financial crisis, managing money with Eisman and Vinnie and Porter and just having a front row seat for what happened into the financial crisis. And so to me, I look at this, it is as clear as day to me that as fast as they've gone up, and the recklessness, they will go down. This bubble will burst, and trying to put your finger on it is really hard. That's what makes me really nervous, especially with a Fed that is hawkish, that has raised interest rates at the fastest pace that it has, and there might be some really weird things going on in the jobs market, to your point, that's the last thing to happen, or whether it's something in the credit. What if all of these things actually crescendo and happen together, and we are really not on very strong footing, in my opinion, on the economy, and the market will not have value valuation support and given the concentration, it just seems like it's a very dangerous.
1: Subject. And added to that, where's the geopolitical risk being priced in? There's a lot of bad things going on around the world. And how do you, I know we can't really predict that or think about that, but how do you put that into your forecast?
4: Yeah. Speaking of NVIDIA and other AI names, there was an FT article, I think this morning talking about an AI startup getting hundreds of millions of funding and over a hundred million dollar valuation. So that's reminiscent of what you're talking about. Near term, I agree with you on the overvaluation of some of these stocks. The reason why NVIDIA and others have ripped is because all of a sudden, TAM that was maybe this big, now all of a sudden, over this subsequent 10 years, it's going to be a lot bigger. But guess what? That doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. And the stock is trading as if it's going to happen in year one, and we're discounting that to present value. So that's not the reality. And I think some of that bubbliness will have to come out but of it. But
3: it gained in market cap terms more than it's expected to have in revenues this year. And it's trading at 25 times sales. I know how this movie ends. And if the problem in a lot of retail self directed Trying to turn your bearish while yeah, you're here, don't by don't, the way. I'm not. Yeah. It might
4: happen. But, but, for but a lot... No, hopefully
3: not. But a lot of our listeners are self-directed folks, okay? And they're not marking us the market every day in this and that whatever. Part of, I think, hopefully what the appeal of these sorts of conversations is that we have been through these sorts of things. And you don't have to buy into a mania. You don't have to hear the term FOMO on financial TV or on a podcast and have to participate. You know what I mean? You can be smart. You can sit on your hands because a lot of people who buy into these things, they don't sell. When it comes back in, they add the first dip right? And then they add the second dip. And then sooner or later, they're just stuck. You know what I mean? And I know how that is on the short side. Yeah. Don't you, Danny? Yeah. Wow, it's not particularly no. great. So I'm just saying like like a lot of self-directed... This is a therapy session, by the way. <laughs> just, a yeah. lot of people make huge mistakes at tops and at bottoms both yeah. ways.
4: Look, this resonates with me because in my prior job, I actually looked at artificial intelligence closely. This was starting in May of 2019. And we launched an artificial intelligence basket of stocks. And I saw those stocks skyrocket during the pandemic and to produce outside returns. But as we hit the inflation concerns, I saw a lot of those stocks reset those valuations and do so very quickly. So we've all had this experience of what comes down, if it's not fundamentally justified at that point, can also come out. What I would say on that, I would not chase the AI frenzy at these particular levels. However, if we get a sizable pullback this is the trend for the next five 10 15 years i'm a huge believer in ai disrupting every single thing we do and think about all the productivity gains that are going to be embedded in every single industry in all of our jobs so you want to invest in that but you know you obviously have to invest in that at discipline valuations for
1: sure and there's ways to play it that are much safer than others although at this point with microsoft google and nvidia doing what they're doing they're expensive but yes there are smart and the chips they that are making the chips themselves from these fab plants are now doubled. It's just, so we're finding the opportunity on the sell-off, I think, is going to be yeah. the key for that.
4: And by the way, finding them in private markets as well. If you look at CB Insights produces the list of top 10 artificial intelligence companies. These are not public companies. These are probably companies you've never heard of. But I'm willing to bet that five or 10 years from now, there's going to be a lot of those companies that IPO and they will become household names. And if I look globally, depending on the region, there's between 58 to 65 times AI companies that are in private markets versus public markets. We'd all love to find the next open AI.
3: Listen, it, that's a problem. Open AI, by the time it goes public, is going to be a hundred billion dollars. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So it was just valued at 30 billion. And I get it. You can tell we're a bit frustrated. Listen, we really appreciate you coming in here. There's a lot of strategists out there who talk out of both sides of their mouth all the time. Okay. You are not one of them. You've straightened us out on a couple of occasions. Hopefully she's helped straighten us out yeah. a little bit now. And we hope you'll come back. Anastasia it's, Amorosa it's from I, I Capital. Thank you for coming Thanks on. Thanks for coming day. on. Thank great you chat. so much. Thank
0: you. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.